0: We're going to come into a time of Bible reading now. So I'm going to be reading from the NIV. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, and John chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter the rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest So that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now into John 3.
1: We are one day closer to seeing Jesus face-to-face, amen? Uh, seeing Jesus is the theme of our series through Hebrews. Uh, if you want to try to find a thread to follow through Hebrews, it's, it's follow Jesus. <laughs> if you can see where Jesus is in the book of Hebrews, you can follow the argument. It's because the argument is encouraging A group of people who have become a little bit complacent, a little bit tired, a little bit weary, a little bit tempted. Uh, It's encouraging them to continue to follow after Christ. I'm glad to see you this morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan Hoffman. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor here at Windsor District Baptist Church. It is great to be worshiping with you. I'm grateful for the group of people that God has brought here, uh, not just today, but as a part of this fellowship. And we know that includes some of you who are joining us online. You might be home for COVID reasons, or you might be away because it's January and it's a great time uh, to get some rest. Uh, Rest is the theme of this section in Hebrews verses one to 13. And we're going to be learning about entering God's rest and the exhortation to do that. But before we get into this, I wanna do a little bit of a look back to last week. And we'll see that last week, it was all about be a hard heart. There's a warning, there's was an exhortation to people who've been invited into the promised land to watch out for a hard heart. First of all, everyone has a potential to get a hard heart then there's a danger that our hearts will become hard. And the danger is that we will miss the word of God. We will not hear it properly. And finally, the cost to that is not being able to enter into God's kingdom. That was last week. This week we come, and the question that sort of follows out of that into this section, and it's a big question for us this morning, is why is it that some people hear the word and believe, but others hear the word and don't believe? You may have wondered that. Why do some people hear it and have faith and other people don't hear it? Or they hear the same word, but they don't have faith. We're going to try to tackle that question. Why don't all who hear believe? Now, the big idea this morning, as you can see behind me, is that to enter God's rest, we must believe. There is an entering that has to happen. It's not as if we will all suddenly wake up after we've lived and breathed and died, and suddenly, bang, here we are. We're in paradise. We're in God's rest. That's not how it works. There's an entering that needs to happen, there's a crossing over that needs to happen. There is a journeying from one into the other. And the big idea today is that all who believe will enter God's rest. You need to remember that. We enter God's rest by faith. You don't have to carve your own way. You don't have to create your own path into God's rest. He's made a way for you. But what you do need to do is you need to follow those steps. You need to persevere. You need to walk after the trail that Jesus has blazed for us. And the simple truth today that you and I need to see is that faith is going to perceive spiritual realities. Faith perceives spiritual realities. If we enter God's kingdom by faith, faith is having the ability to apprehend, to, to, to see, as it were, to, to understand things that are not readily apparent to our natural senses. Faith perceives spiritual realities. And so you're gonna see the difference between those who hear the message but don't believe and those who hear the message and do believe is they are able to perceive things that are true and things that are real, but they're not readily apparent. You can't taste them. You can't necessarily see or observe them with your eyes. But nevertheless, they are true and they are real. They one day will be seen with our eyes. But right now they're only grasped, they're only apprehended, they're only perceived by means of faith. Now the overview of this passage is in Hebrews 4, 1 to 13, the author is going to assert three conclusions. There's there's sort of three therefores or sort of he's he's reasoning through and he's kind of give you sort of three conclusions, each of which urge us to make the most of this opportunity and to enter the kingdom. So the the three conclusions that that are going to arise out of this, and this is not going to be our outline, but if you're trying to make sense of this text, this is a good, helpful way to look at it. Verses 1 to 5, the author comes to the conclusion that God's promise of rest, it remains for us. The promise to have rest in God remains for us. The second conclusion he comes to in verses 6 to 10 is that God's warning... (laughs) Remains for us. (laughs) Just as the promise remains for us, so does the warning not to harden our hearts. And then finally, the last sort of motivating piece in all of this, verses 11 to 13, the author concludes that not only does his promise remain for us, not only does his warning remain for us, but God's word remains over us. In other words, we are accountable to it. And in fact, more than just being accountable, it will expose and reveal who we are. Now, by way of context, just before we get into the message this morning, you need to understand that, that this section, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 4, in my opinion, is really the conclusion of the introduction. So the introduction verses 1 and 2 started with the, pre- the, with the premise that God has spoken. He's spoken in the past at various times in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. Now, if God has spoken in the past to us, that makes sense As we get to the end that the author is going to leave us by thinking about the Word of God and what it does with us, the voice of God, the Word of God. But more specifically, this is also the second half of an exhortation that began really with verse 6 of chapter 3. Verse 6 was a great statement in chapter 3, and there the writer said to those who had gathered, he said, we are his house, we are God's house dwelling place. We're we're his household, his dynasty. We are a part of that if. (laughs) If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence or our boast and the hope in which we glory. The writer is saying if we hold on to these things, we are indeed God's house. And it's that if, the if part, the question, will we hold on, will we not hold on, that's made up last week and this week's section of text. Last week, it was the negative example. There's a lot of focus drawn from Psalm 95 about what God said and how he swore an oath to the generation that had come out of Egypt. And he told them, he said, you're not going to enter my rest because you don't believe me. And there was the warning to those who were listening to the, to the speaker in his time to say, just like they hardened their hearts, make sure you don't harden your heart today. He's going to pick up a little, bit back, a little bit back up from Psalm 95 in this second half. But in this section, the warning of most of chapter 3 is going to pivot into a promise. He's going to pivot from a warning to a promise to show that what is a warning that you won't enter the rest actually speaks also of a reality that there's a rest to be had. There's a rest for us to enter into. Now, the theme is that. It's it's just entering God's rest 10 times in chapters 3 and 4. Ten times we read the phrase in one variation or another, enter God's rest. Do you think the author is trying to say something? Enter God's rest. Now the tone is motivational. There's an urgency to it. The tone here is, hey, let's do it. Let's get there. Let's, let's make sure that we're a part of this. The method is he's going to use some reasoning from the scriptures as well as some rhetoric, but the purpose is really meant to anchor the people who are drifting. And if you're here this morning or you're listening and you might say to yourself, you know, I feel like I've been coasting in my Christianity. I feel like I'm drifting. I don't feel like I'm really anchored to anything. I'm, I'm just sort of going through the motions. This is a message you need to hear. I mean, we all need to hear it, but especially people who are not feeling settled in their faith, people who are unsure of what is tying them to God or to eternity, people who are unsure of their stance in relation to Jesus. And finally, in terms of context, you need to be aware, you might want to jot this down if you have your Bibles open. Uh, three passages that are going to speak into this text this morning. Psalm 95, Numbers 14, those are the same things from last week. But in addition, there's Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, which speak of the rest that God has. So that's, that's our context in uh, and, and terms of what's going into this passage this morning. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into the message. Father in heaven, you are holy and you are good. We need to hear your voice, but Lord, we need to hear it in faith. So, Father, would you bless us today? Would you draw our eyes collectively to you? And may you encourage and strengthen us for your plans and purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Our outline today is going to really look at three Three hidden realities that God's people perceive. You want to know the difference why some people believe and why others don't? There's three realities they perceive in the promises of God that non-believers don't. They can hear the same message about Jesus Christ, but believers will perceive these three things. Non-believers will not perceive them, and they become the focus point here in the text, which is encouraging people to hear God's offer of rest in faith. The three realities that are perceived by people who believe in God, the first is the opportunity. They perceive in God's gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ an opportunity, something that is for them, something that will make them better. It's for their benefit. They see a way into the good. The second thing they perceive, we're going to talk about this, is the urgency that this, this message, this, this good news, as it were, it has a present reality to it that calls for action now. And the third thing that is perceived by those who have faith is our collective vulnerability before the Word of God. These are three things we're going to look at as we go through the text today. First, hearing the opportunity of God's rest, we see that God opened a way for us into his rest. If you have your Bibles, please turn Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. The author begins with his conclusion. This is, again, based off last week. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful. Probably better say, let us be fearful. Let us be fearful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The author opens with the conclusion and he says, if God was warning us to hear properly so that make sure we enter into the rest, well, by definition, there must be a rest for us to enter into. If somebody says, be careful when you cross the street, well, there is a warning, but implicit in it is the permission to cross the street, right? (laughs) Here, the warning is, be careful. Sure that your hearts don't grow hard as you hear God's invitation to join him in His rest. And the conclusion is, well, there must be a rest to be entered into. But the exhortation is: be afraid that you don't miss out. Raise your hand if you've heard of FOMO. Wait a FOMO? There we go. FOMO: Fear of missing out, right? I feel like this is the FOMO generation, okay, maybe I'm part of it, maybe I'm not, I don't know, Uh, but the FOMO generation is, the idea is, you are so sort of running around from this to that, to this to that, you can't commit to anything, you can't settle into anything because you're afraid you're going to miss a better opportunity. And so, a lot of people today say, oh, FOMO, you know, we got to stop with all this FOMO, just settle in, commit to something. Well, this is the Bible's version of FOMO. Okay, this is FOMO right here. Be afraid, be afraid, the author says, lest you fall short. Lest you don't go all the way in. Lest you, lest you begin trusting in the promises of God and then give them up. Don't let that happen to you. He reasons, for we have also had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them. It did not benefit them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. They didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. Interesting. The picture is the word of God goes out and one group of people will hear it, but there will be two ways of hearing it. Even in this room today, the word of God from Hebrews chapter 4 is going to be proclaimed. You are in one room or or one space, if we want to include the digital people. Hi, digital people. One space, right? You're in one space. But there's two ways of hearing what God's going to have to say. You can heed it as something that is true, something that is profitable for you. You can believe and rest and take your stance in it. Or you can say, "Nah." fair enough, but I'm going to go and I'm going to do my thing. It's interesting because the author is referring to the wilderness generation. These are the people that Moses led out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. God provided for them through water from the rock, manna from heaven, quail from heaven. He defeated kings that were opposing them. He got them right up to the border of the promised land and there they are standing at the gateway, standing ready to cross in and they get the report back. And most of the spies say, no, 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 no. Well, the land is great, but there's no way. It's not for us. But there were two people, Caleb and Joshua, who gave good news. They gave a good report. And they said, yeah, this land is good, and guess what? God's going to give it to us. This land is good, and God's going to give it to us, which is why the writer says they were gospeled. These people were gospeled, but they didn't hear it. And so it was no value to them. Even though the message was true, it didn't mean anything because they didn't receive it in faith. How many people are going to stand before God and they're going to say, Oh my goodness, that whack job preacher was right? That person on the street corner who was passing out red frogs saying, Jesus loves you, they were right. They're going to say, I heard it before but it was no value to them because they didn't hear it in faith. And it's for that reason that they disobeyed. And so the author says, now we who have believed enter that rest. They didn't enter, but we who believe, it's not entered past tense, it's entering. We are in process of doing that, in process of entering faith. I'm gonna ask for your prayers, I don't know why, but for some reason, the last several weeks, when I come to preach, I am feeling a heavy spirit of anxiety, and I don't know why, but I'm gonna ask you to pray with me for that, because this is an important message, and the last thing that you or I need is a human being's personal state getting in the way of this message going out. So I'm just gonna take a moment, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me and we're gonna continue to give and dedicate this to God, all right? Let's pray. Father, we know that there are spiritual realities all around us. We know this is a word to be heard and so we pray that it would go out. Father, we pray you would hide the one who gives the message for that person is meaningless. It is your word that counts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you, Chris, for that stool. <laughs> All right. This is a significant message because the word of God needs to be heard in faith. Needs to be heard in faith. Now, the writer goes on to say this is why God had sworn an oath. It's because they didn't believe him when he spoke. They didn't believe him when he talked. And so God finally had enough and he said, well, I'm going to declare you are not coming in. They would then try to enter, but they couldn't because God had already said, you're not going to come in. But the writer is not talking about that so much as the reality of this rest. Towards the end of verse 3, and yet his works, this is God's works, have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere... He has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage before, he says, They shall never enter my rest. Now, what is this rest that we're talking about? What, what is this rest that God has? Is this God sort of curled up under a blanket on the lounge? Oh, just, this creation work was so hard. This is just, oh, it's just brutal. And now I'm just going to curl up on the lounge and, and, and have a nap. Is this God finally getting to turn on his Xbox and just sort of check out for a while and be like, oh, sweet. I'm glad all that creating work is done. Does it mean God's asleep? We love rest, but what does it mean for God to rest? There's a great little short podcast, it's called Exegetically Speaking. Uh, it's put out by Wheaton College, their, their Bible and theology department, their languages. And, and in this podcast this week, actually, uh, John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar, he went, to, he went to talk about what it meant, what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. And he has this great line in there, and I'm going to give it to you now. He says, when it, the climax of the seven-day creation account is the seventh day when God rests. That's the climax, But when God rests, and the ancient world understood this, when God's rest, they don't rest in a bed, they rest on a throne. Brilliant line. When God rested on the seventh day of creation, he didn't rest in a bed, he rested on a throne. The rest that God has is the place where he is perfectly seen and obeyed, where he rules unopposed, where all His purposes and all His his glory is manifest. There's there's nothing that's hidden or obscured. There's no, there's nothing detracting from Him or from His will. He is perfectly worshipped. He is perfectly seen. He is perfectly content in everything that He does. He is at rest and everything is settled. This is the rest of God. Now, when we say we have an opportunity before us, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to enter that rest. I want you to make sure that you don't get this twisted around because when you hear me say you have an opportunity to enter rest, you might be thinking, I just need a break. I'm so looking forward to that. Now, you may need a break and I hope you can get a break and, and trust me, heaven is going to be free of pain and sorrow and all that and that's going to be plenty of a break in and of itself. But when we are promised rest. We're promised a seat in God's rest. We're promised a place in his realm. And we can say we are in process of entering that rest simply by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ has gone back to the Father after purifying, cleansing the world from sin. He's purified that. He's made a sacrifice of atonement. He's risen from the dead. He's he's glorified. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. So there is Jesus. Jesus right now is enjoying God's rest, seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is finished. But before he sat down, he poured out his spirit, and his spirit is active and is moving and is drawing people into God's kingdom. He's applying the Word of God to their hearts to the effect that they no longer remain dead in their spirits but are made alive, and in being made alive in the Spirit, God is ruling and reigning in their hearts. And so, you see, the rest of God is in process of coming to earth. It's in process of coming to earth because it is indwelling the hearts of men and women and children who have received the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which is why Christians can do some remarkable things, which is why the world looks at Christians and say, I don't get it. How are you not freaking out? How are you not worried about disgrace in other people's eyes? How are you not worried about your earthly security? How are you not afraid of this cancer diagnosis that you've received? How are you not losing your mind? Why doesn't the prospect of loneliness scare you? The world looks at Christians and says, I don't get you. Do you know why? Because they've begun entering that rest. And that rest is coming to earth, not just in the form of the spiritual realm, but in the physical reality. And when that rest comes, the graves will be emptied, the judgment will be given, and those who have trusted Christ will enter into that rest with glorified bodies in a place where there is no darkness, where there is no sin and every shred of evil every hint of evil is gone and it's that rest that the author is saying don't fall short of that don't don't start this process don't don't, don't get going on this journey and simply because you know you want to jump into bed with somebody who's not your spouse, or because you 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 want to just accumulate a bit more money, or 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 you you want to just just give your life over to people's reputations. Don't forsake the rest for these things. He's saying there's an opportunity before us. And so there is a warning against falling short. Beware falling short of that rest. Next, not only do believers perceive the opportunity in the gospel, but believers also perceive the urgency behind the gospel. They perceive this this need to act now. Notice what the author does in verses 6 to 10. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today, this he did when a long time later he spoke through David as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's, what's he doing here? It's a bit of a convoluted language. It's a little bit of an intricate line of reasoning to follow. But he's saying, look, if the opportunity to enter the rest still stands, if you're still able to go into that rest, well, by all means, we better get in there. But he then jumps back to the warning of Psalm 95. And he says, well, let's think about when Psalm 95 was written. Psalm 95, it was presumed, like most of the Psalms, was written by King David, who's living much later than Moses, much much later than this generation. And in fact, he's living in Jerusalem. And King David is saying there's still a rest that, that people need to try to enter, and they, they, they can't harden their hearts from that. And so David is saying... If David is saying this then, the writer is concluding, well, then his warning wasn't for the wilderness generation that failed to go into the promised land. His warning must be for future people. And in fact, the warning is generalized by the fact that it's given today. Today, if you hear his voice. Not last week, not in in two months, should the Lord give us two more months, not not tonight, but today, right now, today, if you hear his voice, if he's speaking to you and drawing you now, if you hear it now, don't harden your hearts. Don't do that. He's saying the warning applies to right now. And then he reasons, for if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8, God would not have spoken later about another rest. And then he comes to the conclusion, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, the NIV reads, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. But probably a a more wooden translation would read, now the one who entered God's rest has rested from all. His labors, just as God did from his. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment, if I said to you, look, the first person out the door today after this service gets a free coffee. First of all, you probably don't need any incentive to get out of this hot room. <laughs> but if I said, the first person out of the door gets a free coffee, and, and then you would take that as, as applicable to everyone. But I want you to imagine that our elder, John Camp, sitting at the back, got up in the middle of the service and walked out into the foyer, and he's standing there outside the room. And then I said, now, the, one, the, one who's, the first one who's out the door gets a free coffee. Everyone knows it's John because he's walked out the back of the room, Right? At this point, Lionel stands up. <laughs> All right, Lionel, you get the coffee, mate. You get. The... <laughs> I didn't see you back there. The point is, there is one who's already entered, who's already ceased from his works. There is one who has entered God's rest. Who do we think this is? Jesus, Exactly. Exactly. Which makes sense, because otherwise, this is a very confusing passage. Because in verse 10, he's going to read, now anyone who enters God's rest ceases from their works. And then in verse 11, he's going to say, make every effort to enter God's rest. And you're like, hold on a second. Do I rest or do I make every effort? Do, I, do... What's going on here? It feels a bit schizophrenic. Well, when we understand that Jesus has entered God's rest, He has ceased from his labors. Then it becomes very clear what the author means in verse 11. It means keep up with Jesus. Go where he's gone. Which is the same thing he's going to say in chapter 12, verse 1. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Running your race after him. (laughs) In fact, the whole whole point you could argue of this message that the that the writer of the Hebrews is giving to the listeners is Christians, if you if you can't locate Jesus, if you're not sure where he is and what he's doing, you will drift away. And so his point here is look where Jesus is. He has entered God's rest. He has ceased from his labors. Now, some of you are saying, hold on there, Pastor. This is talking about us not having to work for our salvation. Well, I agree. We don't work for our salvation. But this is not the context for justification by faith. The writer to the Hebrews here is not trying to nut out in verse 10 how we are saved. Let's let Paul be Paul and let him talk about justification in Galatians and Romans chapter 3. And let's let the writer to the Hebrews be who he is, whomever he or she is. The context here is not how you're saved. The context here is where are you going? Who are you following? Jesus, we've already been told in the first few verses of chapter one, one, Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. This is such good news because this means that there is a glorious future for those who trust in the word and promises of God. It means that the whole plan of redemption worked. It means that salvation is available It means that our sins will be wiped away and forgiven. It means that these bodies that have been bound by decay and death and mortality, I know you people in your 20s or teens probably thinking, oh, my body feels great, and it does, but it won't always, trust me. This means that our bodies that are breaking down, this dying process that is constantly happening, is not the final word. Glory is the final word. Resurrection is the final word. It means that the universe is not a product of some random chance, but there is a divine author, and that author is good. It means that, that, that truth and justice and righteousness are actual things that mean something. And that will in the end prevail over wickedness and deception and, and falsehood and betrayal. It means that, that our minds and our emotions that are so, so frantic and, and subject to the fleeting circumstances of our lives will be liberated with the grounded certainty of our Creator. It means that we will breathe, that we will be That we will rest. That contentment and satisfaction will not be virtues just to try to cultivate but will be realities that we enjoy and experience. Can I ask, do you want to go there? Is that what you want? Is that better to you than a promotion? Is it better to you than a bigger house? Is it better to you Than a relationship? Is it better to you than your family's expectations? Is it better to you than anything that you can make out of your life? God says it is. Hebrews is saying it is. Jesus is there in God's presence returned from his redemption mission. Returned, bringing with him many sons and daughters into glory. But there's an urgency because this warning, not to harden your hearts, is a warning for today. I love what our executive pastor Chris Cullen said in Sermon and Scripture this week. He was telling us, he said, I think what this is saying is you can't operate on yesterday's faith. Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. That's it. The faith of yesterday means nothing for the hearing of God's promises today. Faith is meant to be a continual posture. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's an urgency here. It's because you and I never know if the moment we harden our hearts is going to be the last opportunity we had to hear the word of God. When we harden our hearts, when we turn away from the Lord, when we say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to yield to you, Holy Spirit. I'm not going to walk in the ways of righteousness. When we do that, when we firm and stiff our necks, we don't know. If that's the doorway to unbelief, you can't say, well, I'll repent of that later. Really? Really? Yeah, you may not have the chance. You may not want to. What makes us think if we stop trusting God, we're suddenly going to start trusting him again? There's an urgency, and those who believe, those who have faith, not only do they see the opportunity to enter that rest, but they feel the urgency of it. They sense, oh, this word demands and commands a response, which is where the author is going next. You see, if you're going to feel the urgency, then you need to beware of lingering The only time to have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom is when you're crossing into the kingdom. Is if you're in motion, if you're in movement, the only time to have a foot in in unbelief and a foot in faith is as you are beginning, you are beginning your journey with Christ. People have doubts and the Bible says we're to be merciful with people who doubt. But doubt is not meant to be a permanent state of mind. Doubt is not meant to be something that you just set up camp in. Beware of lingering at the border of the kingdom of God. Be wary of of saying, you know, I'm just going to see how this plays out. Really? That's what the Pharisees try to do in Jesus' generation. He's giving them proof after proof after proof after proof. And he's showing them, and and they're saying, well, we just need a little bit more. Well, do this. Oh, do that. Eventually, Jesus just turned away. And he went with those who were ready to listen, ready to follow. Beware of lingering. If If you're lingering, if you're sort of... As our Warren Elder, as our Elder Warren <laughs> uh, said in sermon and scripture, so if you're teetering on the edge, if you're just sort of wavering in unbelief, this message is calling you to say, stop teetering and just fall, just fall into the feet of Christ. Just, just throw yourself, take all the momentum and all the inertia you can muster and heave yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Stop trying to live two lives. If you linger at the border of the kingdom of God, how long before it becomes a choice? How long before it becomes you trying to say, I really don't want to go in? Believers discern the urgency and the timing of it. They also discern the urgency and the priority of it and in the authority of the one who is speaking. There's a priority in this promise, but there's also an authority. I don't know about you, but I get text messages all the time telling me I've won millions of dollars or there's a special package waiting for me somewhere to pick up if I just give them all my bank details. You know, I get tons of promises that get spammed into me, and you know what? I don't even open them. Why? Because there's no authority who is this person? Who is this random thing trying to give me something? They can tell me all the good things they think I want to hear, but I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to open it. But this promise comes with authority. And so those who will persist in faith, they will recognize the authority in the one who said it. The claims of Christ need to be evaluated not because they sound good, but because the authority he claims. Jesus, we're told, is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. The exact radiance of his being. Finally, the third reality, the third reality that believers see They sense their vulnerability. We sense our vulnerability before the word of God. And we're gonna see in these two verses, excuse me, these three verses, that God exposes all by his living, all-seeing word. Here's the the, the sort of the, the, the final concluding exhortation. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Pull out all the stops, do whatever it takes. Give whatever is necessary. This is Jesus saying the guy who found the treasure in the field sold everything he had so he could buy the field. Do this. Don't let anything get in the way. There is no earthly good worth sacrificing heaven for. Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. I'll remind you again, he's not talking to non-Christians, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, let's make sure there's not one single person among us who gets right up to the glass windows of heaven, has a look and says, I don't think so. No, no, Let's funnel through the gate. Let's file in. Let's make haste to move forward in following in Jesus Christ. And in case there was any sort of lack of motivation, the motivation comes in verses 12 to 13. For the word of God is alive and active I'm gonna give you a very wooden translation of this in the original. It literally says, for living is the word of God. This isn't some old and dusty promise. This isn't some creed that's just co- just gathering irrelevance as it rots through the ages. This is a living word. For living is the word and active. The word for active means Working. Do you get the picture? God worked and then he rested. Jesus has entered into that rest. So God has his rest. Jesus has gone before us. He's in there. He's resting. But the word is working. The sun is resting and the word is working and the word is alive. It penetrates even, excuse me, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This series of pairings, this, this, this series of metaphors here, it's meant to show that the word will expose us. It's meant to, to show the penetrating nature of the word to get into places that are hard to separate, that are really hard to distinguish. And you'll find this is what the Word of God can do. In the Bible, the soul and the spirit were virtually synonymous. But the Word of God can penetrate into that. In, in human reality, joints and marrow can be, can be difficult to, to separate. But the Word of God goes there. It even judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Literally, the thoughts and meditations. Just think about that for a moment. What's the difference between a thought and a meditation? A lot of translations will say between the thoughts and the intentions, but it actually goes deeper than that. It it doesn't just distinguish between what you want to do and what you're thinking about. It goes to the difference between those things that your mind can order and the conceptions that your mind brings up. I'm not even confident I understand it. (laughs) But the point is, the Word of God is penetrating But he doesn't stop there. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This living, working word is penetrating into the very inner recesses, the core of who we are. It's able to pull out everything and separate it and see it for what it is. But as we said, believers don't just listen to the promise as an utterance from God. They they see it as something that that has authority over them. There's a vulnerability. And it comes to us in these last lines. Of verse 13, everything is uncovered and laid bare. Literally, everything is naked and laid bare before the eyes of him. And there's a real scary image here, and I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm just trying to give you the full, the full picture of this passage. When it says everything is laid bare, the, the, the phrase to be laid bare means to, to expose the neck. It means to be able to grab the head and pull it back to expose the neck. If you think about human beings, one of the most vulnerable places on our body is our neck. Think about all the functions we lose if we sustain an injury there. Oftentimes, death is not far away. But the picture of being laid bare at the neck is a similar phrase that's used when they're binding a sacrifice. Just before they're about to make the sacrifice, they they lay bare the neck. That's the image. So here's the word of God. It can go deep into places you didn't even think it could go. It exposes us for who we are. Jesus said that every word, every word that we've uttered will come before Him. God's word is probing. And those of us who believe perceive this, we recognize this reality. And so because of this, if that word of God is saying to you, come into my rest, enter into the kingdom that the Son has purchased for you, then we would be utter fools to not strive to enter there. Utter fools. Even worse than people who began. Even worse than people who never even really understood or heard the promise. It's people who, who, who joined the community of believers, people who built their life on the promise and then suddenly decided one day, you know what? Nah. No, I'm going to deconvert. Oh, I'm going to try this thing. Oh, I'll, I'll do that thing. It is the height of foolishness. So we need to strive to enter. This is the difference between those who believe and those who don't. What do I mean by strive to enter? Faith's response to the promise should shape these areas. It should shape our intentions. What's our goals? How much does my faith impact the goals that I set? How much does my faith direct the course of my life? Some of us need to start here. And we need to say, you know what, I'm going to let my faith actually, like my, my, my trust in Jesus and where he says that I'm going, I'm going to let that rewrite all the plans I had for my life. I'm going to say, my plans, tear it up, throw it over here. I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a sharer in Jesus Christ. I'm part of God's household. I'm going to let him judge my intentions. I'm going to let him shape those things. Direction is not too dissimilar to that. Direction is a reminder if you've been heading off somewhere and you're not, like if Jesus is not where you are walking and where you are going, this is the call to turn change course. Or as the Bible says, repent. Our faith ought to shape our motivation, the reason why we do things too often we conceive of the gospel and, and, and Jesus and Christianity as, as this label. We just slap onto ourselves. Well, I self-identify as a Christian. Good for you, buddy. What does that mean? Does that actually impact the reason you do things? Why you do them? Oh, I'm working hard at my job. Why? Oh, well, you know, I, I, I found this great girlfriend or boyfriend. Why? Why are you in that relationship? Why, why are you doing that with your time? How much is my faith impacting the reason why I'm doing things? Furthermore, my faith ought to, ought to impact my preparation. You see, there's an idea in this text, that if we're going to make every effort, that that God has allowed us a certain amount of resources, a certain amount of time, a certain amount of breath, a certain amount of waking hours and energy, a certain amount of calories, kilojoules, whatever you call them. God has allowed us these things, and he has given us discretion on how we arrange those things. And the arrangement of those things is called preparation. The spaces where I'm preparing in my life— how much is my faith informing my preparation? And finally, how much is my faith informing my perspiration? The actual, the actual working, the actual working out. Now, I know you're sitting here saying, but Jesus said he's done it all. He has done it all. <laughs> but, but what about my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Well, yes, it is, it is an easy burden and it is an easy yoke, but it's still a yoke. The ox didn't get hooked up to the yoke and say, Oh, whew, I'm glad I can finally sit back and do nothing. No, the yoke is meant to be you are hooked up with Jesus and he's leading, and you're walking with him. You see, until we've considered how our faith informs these things, and I. I say this to myself as much as I say it to you, if my faith is not informing these things, what I intend to do, the direction where I'm walking, the reasons why I'm doing things, what I'm preparing and what I'm gathering this spare resources for, and how hard I apply myself. If my faith is not directing that, then what is my faith doing and can I call it faith? Faith is not a label. It's a reality. It's an embrace. It's a holding on. Let's pray. Father, we know you are good. And Lord, I pray for those who have been coasting for those who have forgotten the urgency i pray that you would stir their hearts lord i pray for those who because of the flesh or of the devil's tricks or the world's temptations they've stopped seeing your kingdom and your rest as an opportunity and it's not only they only see it as a burden Lord, I pray for those who feel invincible. Lord, we are frail. Father, I ask that you would today, with your gentle hands, apply the scalpel of your word to our hearts. You would cut away any flesh, anything that's not of you, that we would respond.